You're tuned in to More Living with Jim Brogan, broadcast live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator, and he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for over 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, because more living with Jim Brogan starts now. Hello, East Tennessee. Welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI. You know, we've really been on kind of a roller coaster, both in the U.S. and globally, certainly economically, since 2020. With all the shutdowns from COVID and then opening back up, we've had high inflation. We've had supply chain disruptions, labor shortages that have really kind of plagued getting back to a more resolved economic situation. The Federal Reserve has implemented tools to help curb inflation with with the hope of not sending the economy into a deep recession. And now, of course, we're watching as the debt ceiling has been hit, and we're due a big battle in Washington as we head into the summer months with how they're going to handle the debt ceiling. This week on More Living, I have my friend and special guest, Dr. Harold Black, with us in studio to discuss the state of the economy, talk about the Federal Reserve, interest rates, how all this is connected, and help us make sense of all this as we look at where we've been and where we're going in 2023. He's Professor Emeritus at the University of Tennessee, uh, retired after 24 years of service and a former James F. Smith Jr. Professor of Finance, and he is known as one of the country's leading scholars on monetary systems. Dr. Black, great to have you with us this morning. Thank you, Jim. Good to yeah, be here. It's great to have you with us. You know, you were last on May of 2020 was when we last had you with us, mm-hmm. and uh, we were in the midst of lockdown. So a lot's changed in the last couple of years. What's been going on in your life? Gee, <laughs> quite a bit, actually. Um, my university uh, has seen fit the College of Business to endow a chair in my name. So there is now a Dr. Harold A. Black Professor of Business at the University of Georgia. And I was actually stunned when they told me that they were going to do that and and raise the money to endow that chair. And that whole process went rather quickly. And while that was going on, the university itself announced that their new freshman dormitory, new $50 million structure, is going to be named and is named now because there was a ceremony on August the 4th, the Black Diallo Miller Hall. And so my name is on the new freshman dorm at the University of Georgia. Um, I, along with Mary Blackwell Diallo, Carrie Russian Miller, and Alice Henderson, who did not graduate, were Georgia's first black freshman. And we enrolled in 1962, 60 years ago. It doesn't seem that long ago. And it was a it was an emotional ceremony. We had family and, and friends there and it was it was absolutely a wonderful event, and as I said, 
that I can guarantee that the students that walk into that dormitory will have a more welcoming atmosphere than I had when I walked into Reed Hall 60 years ago. Yeah, and we, you know, we talked about that experience uh, a couple of times ago when you were on. Just an amazing story. We will tell you what we'll we'll need to do uh, another show uh, and just talk about the the human interest side of your life because it really is uh, extremely interesting and uh, but very much a pioneer in many ways. Well, there's there, there's one other thing too of which I'm really proud, and that is my my colleagues at in. Professor Ray De Janeiro in, in the finance department at UT, along with um, MTSU and the College of Business at UTC, hosted an academic conference called the Dr. Harold A. Black Academic Conference um, that featured uh, my research. And all of the papers that were presented were inspired in part by various things that I've done in my career. Some of my former graduate students, former colleagues, former co-authors, and other people that I that I'd known only by reputation were there. And it was a day and a half in Chattanooga, and it was just an absolutely, absolutely marvelous event. I was humbled by it all. Well, that's a an ama- your entire story is just so amazing. Let, let's dive into where we what's been going on the last couple of years economically. Uh, we've been really still seeing some supply chain issues, still not gotten completely back to normal. Uh, of course, we've got a huge Im- still imbalance with supply and demand. Inflation is starting to come down. Let's just kind of back up. I mean, the impact of shutting the entire economy down and then rebooting it. Uh, Can you just touch on like how even now, you know, I I wonder if some of the economic readings are somewhat misleading because of the inflation numbers, but just talk about the implication of trying to, you know, shutting the entire world economy down and then just trying to reboot it is a lot of this just, it's still trying to get back to some sort of equilibrium. I actually do believe that. I, I believe that we've talked somewhat about this before, that that in my estimation, the entire I mean, and this is this is not just looking back hindsight, because I said it at the time that I thought that shutting down the entire economy, the world economy was 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 a gross mistake. And the reason it's a gross mistake is that there's so many businesses, mainly small businesses that are fragile, that are literally um, invoice to invoice, paycheck to paycheck. And when you shut those businesses down, many of them go away and go away forever. And it will take another set of circumstances that prompted their founding to bring them back to life. And and so it's, it's not one of those fluid situations where you go in business, go, can go out of business and then come back into business as economic conditions change because there's so many costs associated with it. I said at the time that that all the signals were giving us that that there were a certain group in our population because if you remember all of the initial COVID stuff came out of nursing homes and assisted living homes. That I thought that those were the places that should be monitored, should be shut down, and and the rest of the country should go along. I actually believed 
somewhat part of the scientists were saying, mainly because of the 1918 flu. And that is that the way you get through those things is through natural immunity. Because, you know, we got through the 1918 flu without any vaccines at all. And so I thought that that might be the way we were going. But but obviously the politicians were scared. This was something new. We hadn't seen it before. At least we hadn't seen it since 1918. And wasn't it something like 15 days to stop the curve or or something like that? Yeah, you that? know what? They that? did start that. They said that initially, right? That? Yeah. And And so everybody said, okay, let's shut it down for 15 days. And that 15 days kept stretching yeah. on and on and on. And we got to the ludicrous position in which big box stores could operate, but the small stores couldn't. And that made no sense at all. And I wrote a, an article some, some time ago in which I stated that every single measure that was being recommended that we take with COVID were actually the same measures that came from 1918. And I was wondering, had we not learned anything since then? And probably the most distressing thing, and one that I wrote about and one that I attacked, were all of these doomsday models that were predicting that a third of the population would die and all of this stuff, one coming out of England, one coming out of the United States. And I thought that was sheer nonsense, and of course it was. Well, to me... There are several signals, I think, that the economy is still a little, you know, still somewhat broken. People talk about the inverted yield curve. Mm -hmm. You know, the 10-year Treasury is paying less than the two-year. That's right. But now the Mm three-month, just here recently, the three-month Treasury is paying more than the 10-year. Exactly. And that's a huge red flag, right? Exactly. Um, I think probably we've talked about the inverted yield curve before and what to watch for. If you wanted to look for the next recession, because inverted yield curves have predicted um, probably 50, 60 percent of the following recession. But it, it, it doesn't time it, of course. But you're absolutely right that that Wall Street generally looks at the 210. And that is what's the difference between the two year treasury and the 10 year treasury. And and. I actually have always stated that we should look throughout the whole length of the yield curve. And and, and now with the three month moving up above the 10 year, Wall Street is telling you one thing. Wall Street is saying we believe there's an inflation and we I mean, a recession. And we believe that that recession is going to be probably within the next 12 months. You know, it's interesting. I get a lot of people ask me. Well, Jim, if we know we're going into recession, of course, we don't know that, but it is probably pretty likely. Um, you know, what does that mean for market investments? And we're going to get to all of that stuff today. So I'll tell you what, we're going to get to our first break and we come back with Dr. Black. I do want to dive a little bit more into what the the numbers are telling us and what this might mean for us. But we're definitely going to get into what does this mean for your investments? We're going to talk about Federal Reserve policy. We're going to talk about the impact of the debt ceiling. So stay with us as we're visiting with Dr. Harold Black. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI.
Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back. This is More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. We're visiting with Dr. Harold Black, and we're talking about the economic implications of everything that's going on right now. I do want to dive into the federal debt. So we hit our debt ceiling a week ago, a little over a week ago. Um, the Treasury is just kind of robbing from Peter to pay Paul right now. They're, Janet Yellen has said that she thinks that'll work until June, sometime in June, although that could be a little bit volatile in, in its estimate. Um, how big of an issue? I mean, th- they're going to raise the debt ceiling, but I think it could get pretty ugly before they do. If we look at 2011, the congressional makeup was somewhat similar to what it is now. What's your thought on this? It's um, it's political theater. Uh, yes, you're right. Debt ceiling is going to go up. They're going to play all sorts of games like they always do. Um just because we've reached the debt ceiling doesn't necessitate a crisis. And here's why. A good deal of the federal debt is owned by the federal government. Namely, the Federal Reserve owns quite a bit of the debt. Because mainly its portfolio is made up of treasury securities or government-backed bonds or items like that. And so... If, if if we didn't want to have a crisis, all the Treasury would have to do is say, we will just suspend payment of federal debt that's paid to federal agencies or agencies of the federal government. That's the first thing we'll do. Secondly, what we'll do is we'll prioritize whatever we pay. We'll put out a payment schedule about what we pay. Now, you 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 know perfectly well that when the when the treasury issues new debt that a good deal of that debt is simply rollovers that what happens is that people who are holding that debt when it matures don't cash it out they just roll it into a new bond well all you have to do is like i say is prioritize the payment of it suspend the payment of it um to federal agencies, and then let me see what that number is. Also, when they say we can't, we have to shut down the government, have you noticed what they do is they shut down those things that inflict the most pain on consumers. Remember they closed the national parks that one time? Um, they, they don't suspend what they call essentials. Well, in my opinion, the government shouldn't be funding non-essentials in the first place, but that's just me. But if it didn't have those non-essentials, then, of course, we wouldn't have the debt crisis. So it becomes political theater. If the Republicans are in power, the Democrats will put up a logjam in the way. If the, Repu- if the Democrats are in power, then the Republicans will yell. But I don't believe that either side is really, really serious about addressing the debt, because even though it may be $31 trillion, the total amount of obligations of the federal government is probably more like $500 trillion. 
And you're just you're, you're mentioning, I guess, the unfunded liabilities exactly. of things like Medicare and Social, Social Security, Security prescription drugs. That's correct. The debt issue itself. Is there a point? I mean, you know, people say, well, we should have a balanced budget. We have to do that in our households, all that. Federal debt isn't necessarily a bad thing for our country or our economy. What What is the right balance there, Dr. Black? Well, you see, that's a very good question. Sure, households have to balance budgets, but corporations don't. Corporations can be in debt forever. Um, as long as their cash flow payments can cover right. their debt payments, they can they can be in debt forever, and they mostly are in debt forever, and we don't even blink at that. Um, with, with the federal government, the question is, when does that debt become binding? In other words, when does it inhibit the federal government from pursuing whatever goals the federal government has? Now, the poster child for federal debt is Japan. Japan has had a federal debt that has been way over their GDP for any number of years. It's about three times. It GDP, is. I it? mean, it's just absolutely amazing. But, but maybe it's a cultural thing because the Japanese continue to issue bonds, but the Japanese are the ones who buy the bonds issued by the Japanese government. Very few other governments, very few other individuals will buy those. But as long as they can keep selling that to themselves, they've demonstrated that huge amounts of debt are actually sustainable. So the question actually comes down to whether or not the United States is going to get into a place where entities outside of the United States, foreign governments, foreign individuals, will all of a sudden stop buying U.S. Treasuries. That's the question, I believe, Jim. Well, what, well, the interest on the debt, let's talk about that, too, because it does seem like markets, you know, we're around 11 to 12 percent of, of, of revenues is going out in interest expense. And I think by the end of the year, it will be right around 15 percent. And typically, if I look at the past, it seems like markets, the markets start becoming uncomfortable when it starts pushing 15 percent. I, I, you know, I think. That's about right. I do believe that that's about right. But you see, here is, here's the flip side of that. Um, my dear beloved sainted mother, who passed away April 14th of 2020 at age 101, used to look at me and say, Harold, why does the Federal Reserve hate us seniors? And the reason she was saying that was that we were in this zero interest rate scenario that started back in 2008. And she was earning absolutely no money on her CDs. And, 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 and of course, we can get into why I believe that the Federal Reserve policies, the Federal Reserve put us into this mess, it's kept us in this mess, and now it's supposed to extricate us from this mess. This is all on the Federal Reserve, by the way. Um, well, my mother would be at least a little pleased now because interest rates are recovering to more historic levels and CDs have started paying a positive rate of return. So the flip side of interest rates going up as a percent of the debt is that 
seniors will be better served. And because we're talking about a percent of the debt, if the economy grows, that percent goes down, even if the dollar amount of the debt goes up. And that is what has happened traditionally. So when we come out of this particular cycle, and real GDP starts to increase. I read where GDP went up 2.9% last quarter, but I haven't found, to me that sounds like nominal GDP rather than real GDP. But if it's real GDP, and if the economy grows faster than the debt, then of course that ratio never gets to 15%. Well, and in fact, in the 50s, I mean, our debt to GDP was... The highest it had ever been in 1946 until just mm. now, and the debt kind of got inflated away. So as the economy grew, mm. the debt issue, as you discuss, that's exactly kind of the same thing that happened, right? That's exactly right. I've got a uh, – you were talking about interest rates, and I've got a chart here, Dr. Black, and I don't. I, I wasn't really planning on getting to this, but then when you said the interest rate, you mentioned banks. Um. Since this started, so the federal funds rate has gone from basically zero up to four and a quarter, four and a half percent. The average savings account interest rates at the banks have gone from basically zero to less than a, one half of one percent. Is this because consumers don't have enough of an advocate? Is this banks taking advantage of consumers? What is your view of that? But, you know... I believe that it's getting so that deposits in depository institutions like banks are a matter of of convenience more than anything else. It's a matter of I li- think that's right. It's a matter of liquidity mm-hmm. more than anything else. It is not there for long term savings, and I believe that that is what. Actually, consumers are telling us when they will leave their money in at that low rate rather than to move it elsewhere. Do you remember the days of hot money in which in which CD money would 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 change from one account to another account as CD rates would go up? Do you remember when all that was going on and the federal government had to put in an early withdrawal penalty? on CDs when all of this was going on. This was well, I believe I probably was in Washington at the time. Yeah, I think prob- this was before my time. Oh, I, it, was in the, it was in the early early 80s. And they had to impose early withdrawal penalties on CDs because a person would go in, put $10,000 in a CD. The next week, interest rates would go up. And they'd move and, it into And they would t- liquidate it and move it someplace else. And that's how we got the early withdrawal penalties. Well, what I believe has happened since then is that CDs and actually holdings of short-term securities have become the alternative for people who want to have a more of a positive rate of return, and the bank accounts usually just provide liquidity. That's what I think. I think that's a great word because the reality is, I mean, you can get eight-week treasuries paying a decent amount. You can get three-month CD paying a decent amount. I think that's a great point. Well, let me tell you one other thing, too. That I used to do this sort of work as an academic. And I mean, as a matter of fact, I think I wrote several papers on this. And it was on the process of selling treasury bills. 
that there were actually two markets. There was an open market, which rates are bid, and then there is a closed market. Well, if you looked at that, the proportion of households, smaller bids, would increase dramatically as interest rates would go up. And I haven't looked at this in a while, but I would suspect that the proportion of treasuries now being bought by the public at auction is much greater than it's been historically. And actually, I can answer some of that just from my own business. It's a, it's it's becoming it, it's there's a lot more available in the secondary market than the primary market, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that, of course, is because there's you know the government's or the Fed's buying buying you know they're taking ninety five billion off the balance sheet every month, so there's. Uh, in terms of the, the 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 way the types of treasuries that people are buying, there's a lot better availability on the on the secondary open market than there is on the primary market. Uh, the, the the auctions themselves, it's very very difficult to find. I mean, something comes up, it's gone like that. That's correct. Yeah. Tell you what, um, I want to talk to Doctor Black more about the Federal Reserve. So when we come back, we'll we'll have more. So stay with us. As we visit with Dr. Harold Black from the University of Tennessee, this is More Living with Jim Brogan on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. This is More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. You're listening to News Talk 98.7 WOKI, and I'm visiting with my friend, and uh, someone, a friend of the shows, but also a personal friend, Dr. Harold Black. Great to have you with us again. And uh, you mentioned in that last segment, Dr. Black, about the Federal Reserve's role in where we are now. Um, of course, the Federal Reserve lost a lot of credibility with their approach to the inflation. Um, they're trying to build that back. They're increasing rates dramatically over the last year. Uh, we talked earlier that, you know, when the entire world economy shuts down, you can't just flip a switch and turn it back on. So it's certainly been a challenging environment. Has the Federal Reserve added to the chaos? The Federal Reserve has created the chaos. Um, the, the economy and how it moves, and especially inflation, you probably recall that Milton Friedman used to say that that inflation is 100% a monetary phenomena. And here's what he means by that. We have some politicians who are saying that the inflation has been caused by all of this federal spending. We've had a trillion dollar bill here and three trillion dollar bill here and $1.7 trillion. Well, that's all in well and good. But if the, if the Federal Reserve didn't endorse that, in other words, if the Federal Reserve had kept the rate of growth of the money supply where it was prior to all of this spending, we wouldn't have not had inflation. We would have had prices change in the economy. The example that I used to use in the classroom is I say, consider inflation the air in a balloon. 
that if you if you put more air in the balloon, you get more inflation. But if you don't put air in the balloon and you just start changing prices, you're just squeezing on the balloon. That the over amount of air in the balloon stays the same, but you just redistribute the air within the balloon. And that's the way it is with the economy. If the Federal Reserve doesn't create money, and you know it has because its balance sheet grew from $1 trillion to $8.2 trillion. Uh, M2 went up $6 trillion or so, somewhere in that neighborhood. The Federal Reserve hadn't done that. We would not have had inflation. We would have had all sorts of price disruptions within the economy. But we certainly would not have had inflation. Remember, is the overall change in the level of prices. We would not have seen that. And so what the – but I have – I have reasons to know why the Federal Reserve has acted like it did. Federal Reserve is structured to be independent. And that is that the federal government, like the president, can't dictate to the Federal Reserve what it wants money to be, inflation to be, all that sort of stuff. That the Federal Reserve is supposed to make those decisions independently. That's why the president can't fire any member of the Federal Reserve, they have to be impeached by the Congress. And to date, that's never happened. So the Federal Reserve, though, is still a political animal. And it is in Washington, D.C. I've written before and have said for years that the Federal Reserve would be much more effective as far as the economy is concerned if we move it out of Washington, D.C. and put it in Kansas City, Missouri. And you say, why Kansas City? And I say, because they have great barbecue. <laughs> but, but if it's out of Washington then the members of the Fed don't get influenced by the D.C. scene, by their neighbors who are all lobbyists and all that sort of stuff. I'd like to see them out there with real people that have real jobs. But here's the thing. The Federal Reserve started all of this. They kept interest rates low well past the time they needed to do so. Way longer than they should. And they were doing all the the QE. They were doing all of the QEs. And I know that a lot of us were saying, all along that that was strictly political and the reason it's political is because if they had done what they do historically it would have disrupted in many ways the political process now during this whole period of time jay powell of course in the end of it wants to be renominated by joe biden and joe biden came in to eradicate everything that had donald trump's name on it well jay powell was nominated by Donald Trump. So if Jay Powell wanted to be nominated, he had to do what the Biden people wanted him to do. And what they wanted him Mm -hmm. to do was to goose up the money supply to buy the issues of treasuries to finance all of this spending. Treasury went along with it 100%. Yeah, I mean, you you flush the amount of cash into the system over the last 10 years that have happened – then what I'm hearing you say is that's largely what's led to most of this. That's what's led to, in my opinion, yeah, 90% of it. It would not have occurred had not the Fed done it. But, but you see, that's the problem with discretionary monetary policy. And that is the Fed acts one way and always acts more than it should going in that direction. We always used to say it overshoots, and then it overcorrects, and then it overshoots. And it, it's and a pendulum. That's exactly right. And I fully have been expecting that the, the Fed will overshoot on the interest rate increases. you agree with that? 
I don't know. Let me let me put it that way, because what the Fed and the markets have signaled is that it's really it's it's still going to increase, but it's going to increase at a decreasing rate. Mm-hmm. That it may have been going up fifty basis points, but next time it'll be twenty five basis points. You know that fifty basis points was extraordinary because most Fed changes had been in the twenty five basis point range. Yeah, and then we had four months in a row at seventy five basis points. That's exactly right. And but and what's but you know how markets act. You know how you know what signals are. And I believe that the Fed was sending the markets a very, very strong signal by doing so. There seems to be a lot of potential for market disruption right now. Mm-hmm. Um even when I look at the Fed funds rate. The Fed has been very clear that it's going to increase rates more this year. They're going to dial back the rate of the increases. We'll probably end up over 5%. And they've said they will hold that through the end of the year. Mm -hmm. The markets seem to be pricing it as if the Fed will start cutting rates late in the year. So I think what, you know, we look at, I mean, that's what led to a lot of the market instability last year is, you know, confusion over what will the Fed do? How's that going to impact the economy? How quickly are they going to raise rates? So when we come back from our last break, I want to talk about the potential of market disruption and what does this mean for you and me and how should we be handling things? So stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. For tuning in this week to more living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI, I'm Jim Brogan. You can check us out online, broganfinancial.com. You can catch all of our podcasts if you've missed part of our show today with Dr. Harold Black. Go to BroganFinancial.com and click on radio. Uh, also, I do want to mention uh, we're, we're about to start up our round of classes. The University of Tennessee's Adult Education Center is having their next class, Financial Survival for Retirement, on February the 2nd and the 9th. It's a two-part class, 6.30 to 8.30, both nights over at the down, at Downtown Conference Center. To find out more information, you can go to FinancialSurvivalForRetirement.com. And you can download a syllabus and click to register. And then all of this, the upcoming classes in the spring are on there. We've got more one-night classes. We have a one-night class on income planning. We have a one-night class on tax planning. So uh, you can find the entire class schedule at my website. If you go to broganfinancial.com, click on classes. We've been visiting with Dr. Harold Black today about the economic outlook, the Federal Reserve. We've talked about federal debt. I see 2022 was an extraordinarily volatile year in this in the markets. We had the numbers of days that the market moved up or down. They were volatile both ways. You know, we don't mind upside volatility, right? Mm. <laughs> but the number of days the market moved over 2%, which is very volatile, was record high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought 
you know, I had been thinking that as the market got its hands around what the Fed's doing with inflation, some of that would calm down. Now we have continued potential disruption. We talked about hitting the, the debt ceiling, which we know how that will end up in the end. But getting there is going to create a lot of disruption. Markets don't like uncertainties. What do you see in 2023 with all of this? I, I just simply see more of the same. Um, I actually believe that because we have a split Congress, that we'll have we'll have actually more political strife, not less political strife, and which that, makes perfect sense. And and because of that, uh, because of the power that the Freedom Caucus has. I think they will cause well within with, within the Republican caucus uh, a lot more disruption than than what we've we've seen in the past, and so I see quite a bit more volatility now. As you probably know, market volatility generally means that that household investors will make poor decisions and they will amplify those poor decisions that they will buy at the wrong time. They panic and they sell at the wrong time. And you're the professional, but it, and, and, and people certainly ought to listen to you and people like you. But my philosophy has always been doing periods of high volatility. Once again, it depends on your goals. If you've got long-term goals, then actually you should protect yourself the way that is best. And one of the ways is just to sit pat because it's one of those, whatever goes down, goes back up as far as markets are concerned. Um, And so I always have had a philosophy of it's sort of, you know, Burton Malkiel. And that is the, the sort of buy and hold strategy. Don't churn portfolios because, you do them at the wrong time, and 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 so I would advise people, you know, to listen to people like you, uh, but don't panic. Yeah, you know, I just spoke last week. I, I looked at there was a a Bloomberg tweet from January a year ago, and it uh, it was fourteen top financial firms on Wall Street, and it gave their predictions for where we would end the year. Where would the S and P five hundred be? And of course, nobody hit it. Mm-hmm. They were all too optimistic. Even the most pessimistic was way too optimistic. If we look at it in hindsight, and I think when we start trying to predict short term returns, it's folly. We know that. Over time, markets do tend to go up, uh, but the question is over what period of time. And so one of the things I really preach is the need to stay disciplined. Mm -hmm. Market investments that take risk need time, at least five or six or seven years to go through inevitable ups and downs. And that's why your short-term income and cash needs should be coming from things that are much, much more stable that you don't have to sell off market investments that are potentially down in value in the short term because we just don't know that's exactly right yeah and if we look at 2011 last time we hit the debt ceiling we also had a divided washington and the months leading up to that debt ceiling in august of that year the months leading up to that the market went down over 20 percent but then they they solved the issue and and ironically by the end of that year 
the market was in the green for the year. That's right. And so, you know, the problem with trying to time things is you have to be right twice. It's not just getting out. It's also when do you get back in, right? That's correct. And I don't know anyone or anything or any computer program or or any expert who's right on both ends. It just doesn't happen. That's correct. So I think the key is... You do need to measure the risk in your portfolio, and you do need to be sure that you have money set aside for those short-term needs so that you can ride out the it. Because the two things I feel like I know about the stock market, Dr. Black, is they're very volatile. They have potential to be very volatile, and they're just unpredictable. In the, sh- in the shorter term, the forecast, I have found, the more it says about the forecaster than it does the actual forecast. That's right. All you have to do is to look at at, at at consensus forecasts. And when you look at consensus forecasts, you know, consensus turns out generally to be wrong because the consensus is made up of people that are well above that number and other people that are well below that number. And so when you get consensus, you get a number that probably – will be incorrect. And so, as you say, individual forecasters are usually not very good in the short run. And by the way, that includes the Federal Reserve. Yes, it does. And one of the things I've been talking a lot about, Dr. Black, because people are saying, well, Jim, if we're likely to head recession, shouldn't we just get out of the market? Talk. I've been talking about, there. I mean, the market, the stock market and the economy are two completely different things. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because the, the when we get economic data, that's what happened in the rearview mirror. That's right. And remember, the stock market theoretically is supposed to be a predictor and not a sign of exactly what's going on today. And so you don't usually read today by looking at today's stock market because the stock market is reacting to past events, trying to project well into the future. It's a leading indicator. That's right. Where are we going to be in six or eight months? That's right. And I th- more than more often than not, the actual low point in the stock market is six, seven months prior to a recession. So let's just talk about the economy then. We don't want to predict markets. We just got a couple minutes left here, Dr. Black. You did mention you see more volatility in 2023. You said you think that there's a pretty decent likelihood we're in recession in the next 12 months. I think so. Um, The consumer spending numbers have come down, and that usually is an indicator. Um, You know that the mortgage uh, market um, is, is... currently suffering as the people are trying to adapt to the higher interest rates. And that's usually a leading indicator as well. And if you look at the the University of Michigan's um, sentiment index, that's registering low numbers as well. And, and this is a consumer-driven economy. That's what it is. And if the consumers start cutting back, if the consumers are pessimistic about the future, then invariably a recession follows. The question, however, is how deep is that recession going to be? And I will say something I've always said. 
if the federal government, like the Federal Reserve, gets in to try to soften the recession, then what we get is a U-shaped downturn. It is longer than it should be because recessions generally, if the federal government doesn't intercede, is a V-shaped. And you go into it. It might be deeper, but you come out quicker. You sure do. Yeah. That's a great word. I I hate we're out of time. I could talk to you for another two, three hours. Dr. Harold Black, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. It's great to be back with you. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's Dr. Harold Black from the University, Professor Emeritus from the University of Tennessee, really a, a, a national leader in monetary policy. We've been discussing the economy because a greater economy provides for more wealth so you can live the best years of your life your way. Thank you to Riley for engineering the show. Thank you to Jill for helping produce the show. This is More Living with Jim Brogan on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. The views expressed by Jim Brogan and his guests are not that of Cumulus Media. Any discussion of financial, legal, and tax planning strategies is not intended to be individualized advice and is general in nature. Always consult with your advisor for advice specific to your needs. This program's content does not represent a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment by Jim Brogan or Brogan Financial Incorporated.